Hello everyone. So welcome to season 6 of The Tarik with Walid. And I wanted to thank everyone for your support and hopefully we will continue to have good episodes, continue to have good conversations on politics and public policy. So today we'll we'll be discussing an issue that to be honest I am not super familiar with. But it's an extremely important one of the biggest at uh, what an extremely important issue one of the biggest challenges if not the biggest challenge of our time which is climate change and we have two young activists two young environmental activists singaporean activists and they are both undergrads just full disclosure one of them Therese uh, was my student uh, she's still a student at NTU as in I just don't see her around I'm sure she's still on campus I just don't see her around that much because she's busy with activism or she's not doing my classes but she was my student and Kit is also an undergrad studying in the states but uh she's she's not my student okay so I but I know I know both of them so just a disclaimer both of, uh, they approached me and asked me whether I wanted to discuss this topic I'm, I'm more than happy and and that is also the case for anybody who wants to discuss any particular issue and you can just approach me and then we see whether we can we can have an Instagram discussion on it okay, okay. right hello so where, where are you guys at now in Egypt <laughs> oh, so yeah, you are still at COP okay yeah okay so can you can you explain to us right what is COP 27 what are you guys doing there and what's the significance of COP 27 Yeah, so COP um, 27 basically stands for Conference of the Parties and is the supreme decision-making body of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was a document that uh, many uh, countries signed um, many years ago, I think in the 1990s. And then like, since then, every year, they have this conference to discuss uh, critical environmental issues of uh, climate change, basically. Mm. So like this year is actually the first time that Singapore built a pavilion at COP. Right um, yeah, we're inside one wow. of the rooms right now. So it's like a space in the conference center that they built. And this is the first time they did it. So they actually invited a few um, young like activists from Singapore to come along and run some programs or like speak on panels. Um so that's how we got the chance to come. Yeah. Okay, wow. So it is great that the so the government invited you guys. They yeah. gave us two uh party overflow badges. So, okay. yeah. Yeah, okay, that means okay. like you can't be part of the delegation. Yeah. Right. Okay. But so you know yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah, sorry. We're actually people here because our our kids on an observer badge. So it's a different yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So you know, young people can be equally inspiring and infuriating, uh, and I think <laughs> you guys are pretty inspiring, you know, to do what you do at such a young age. I mean, a lot of respect for that. So, so thank you. So, so can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, and I'm, I'm really, I really want to be educated on this issue as well. I don't know as much as I should. So what is the significance of our governments by the way for those who uh for for those who are uninitiated the government the Singapore government promised a net zero carbon uh policy by 2050 uh so what is the significance are you guys happy with that or like all activists are you still unhappy with some aspects of it <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, I think like the number or like the term net zero by 2050 gets thrown around a lot and people don't realize it actually comes from like a scientific basis, um, which basically the UN said that if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, the entire globe has to reach net zero by 2050. Um, that's why we see like a lot of countries doing that. And so once you pass this point, it's when like a lot of ecosystems kind of reach a tipping point and climate impacts will be really just disastrous across the world. Um, and so a lot of activists in Singapore have been like calling for net zero by 2050. And I think it's very significant. Like I'm happy with it. I'm not sure about Torrance. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a significant milestone also in our whole journey. Like initially, there was no there was no ambition to even have this kind of um um net target, zero. and then after we moved to having oh net zero by or around mid century, and then finally we finalized those exact uh an exact uh, concretely by 2050. So I feel like even though uh, we may not have the exact tra trajectory on a concrete uh way on how we want to get there yet, at least having that. Um, back of mind consideration or having that target out there uh, limits the kind of activities that we want to do in the future, limits the way we think of like, uh, how we want to consider our um, policies to consider environment or consider more of like economic considerations in the future. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that's, that's, that's a good segue uh, into the next uh, topic. But, but I just wanted to ask uh, a little bit because I saw this meme, I think, I, I don't know whether Kate uh, you shared it or Therese or maybe it's Chiyun who shared it uh, one one of the three of you uh, about explaining the the graphics you know explaining net zero and how you can buy uh, buy the thing as well can can you explain that a little oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it's carbon credits right because yes. if let's say Singapore we don't have space for renewable energy um and we still are reliant on companies like Shell and Exxon um, or Jurong Island. So there's no way you can kind of fully cut your emissions to zero, right? You're still going to have a bit. So there's this thing called carbon credits where basically, let's say we build a forest in Indonesia. They can use that amount of like emissions that we reduce in that forest and use it for Singapore. So even though your own country, like your emissions are still not at zero, it's still overall considered zero or net zero because yeah. you, and, bought, and, you bought it yeah you bought like credits so they're basically commodifying nature and mm, making mm, it mm. so like yeah. the money you got the more you can pollute and so it's not very equitable yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's what i wanted to ask the the inequality behind climate activism right um what what happens to the the global south right which uh the the global south is at a different level of development right it seems like you know and i've been experiencing uh this or i've been seeing this a lot with regard to the world cup not not climate activism i see that there's a resurgence of the white man's burden right they want to civilize the world uh and uh, and i see this playing out in the world cup but i also see playing out in uh, the discussions on climate change when when the global north is talking about, oh, you know, the other countries need to do this. But but then you also contributed to a lot of environmental pollution, degradation as your countries develop. Conveniently, yeah. once you're, you're developed, then you're telling the others to... So how, yeah. as, as climate activists, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so like, there's this... Um, there's this a framework that's now being pushed out at the UN level called loss and damage. 
uh, finance. Right. So like the idea is to get these countries who have been responsible for the historic emissions to pay up for what they uh, what we call like owe to the developing countries for all that they are suffering today, right, because of the climate crisis. Uh, we all know that they are suffering disproportionate impacts of climate change because of uh, certain, um, like, simply because of their own development trajectory. They are at a later mm -hmm. stage, right? So this loss and damage finance um, is about, like, it's about getting uh, these countries to pay um, using like public finance and also grant-based finance to these developing nations in, in order to cope with uh, in order to cope with the impacts of climate change that are beyond what they can cope with. So, Prof Wallet, you can tell us if it's getting too technical because we've been living no, in no, COP. No, carry on, carry on. <laughs> no, carry on, carry yeah. on. So if, if I can understand it, I think other people can understand it as well because my, my knowledge about this is very little. So so this loss and damage finance thing, that's that's interesting. So how how is it gonna work? So the so it's like uh compensation. I think it'd be fun not to use the words compensation yeah. because like there's something very touchy that the developed nations yeah, don't yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Compensation, they try not to use it. But like um it's essentially, I think they want to set up like, a finance facility at COP and at, at the UNFCCC level, so that like it's, so it's to guarantee a form of equitable access for everybody as well, right? When you have it at the UN level, where they're having like private kind of bilateral um the negotiations. I think that's like the ideal situation, right? Where you have a pool of money that you can tap. If let's say your country is facing like crazy floods, like Pakistan. Um, in reality, I think we've seen these two weeks, like the US is the number one blocker of loss and damage at the moment. They're just not willing to compromise at all. So it may move into something that's a bit more of a compromise, um, like there may be conditions attached to it, or it may be only accessible to certain countries. We st like, it's still yet to see how they're going to operationalize it. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you, Kate and Therese. There is a comment by an activist who, who is clearly not happy. Uh, Chun Hao, uh, he said the definition of net zero is actually really broad and vague. That's why there are many interpretations of what it means and what it looks like. So there are a lot of creative solutions to decarbonize. Uh, any comments on that? Yeah, I feel like that's why also, right? Like after we announced net zero, like, okay, great. Like now what can we do from here? How can we ensure that that, that goal is actually realizable or is it just going to be words on paper that we don't actually fulfill? Like for example, the developing developed nations promised $100 billion in climate finance for like eternity already. And yet that has not, still not been fulfilled. So like, like, yeah, like we want, now climate activists are calling for like concrete policies on how we can actually see that materializing and happening. Okay, okay, thank you. So, so let's talk about that, right? The concrete policies. What are you guys suggesting and what, how would you respond to the common accusation? Oh, the moment we do this, the economy is going to tank in Singapore. Singapore is a small country. We are not like the other big countries. We cannot, and we only contribute 0.2% to, to the global warming, whatever it is. But of course, by per capita... Per capita, it's, it's quite bad, right? We are one of the highest. But yeah, 0.2%. But for a small country, that's still significant, yeah. right? So, uh, so how would you respond to that, the, the economic uh, aspect of it? I think we've heard this so many times before. <laughs> and I think people have this misconception that like environmental activists are saying, oh, let's shut down Jurong Island tomorrow. Like, we are responsible people and we are calling 
not for like immediate shutdown, right? We are saying we need a transition and we have to at least start that process first. So that means like upscaling your workers in oil and gas and maybe moving them into renewable energy projects instead or equipping them with new skills that they will need. Um, right now, Singapore is barely, like we've barely started on that process. We are still investing or allowing the expansion of oil and gas or fossil fuels when the science clearly says that that's not possible. So I think that's the main thing that like as environmental activists, we want to see like that transition and not, we're not saying like, oh, we should just kick Exxon out tomorrow. Yeah. I think mm. like, like the reason why we are still like investing in these companies is because we see them as a major business opportunity. And so you can see that like, uh, it's still this constant prioritization of the economy over the environment and the like, the refute, the, this, um, desire not to transition away from an economy that is pollutive and also like, I think we need to like st at least like start that narrative, start envisioning a different a different kind of economy that we can work on. Like, even if we don't exactly like start working on the actions, right? At least start having that um, conversation and idea, which is not really there right now. Yeah. And also, okay. I feel like um, yeah. oh yes, sorry, I feel like it's like this like hyperbole, right? That a lot of people um. I always say it like, oh, so the whole economy will crash. And personally, like looking at our 26 recommendations, I think they are quite reasonable and that they're like, they are, they're, I don't think they'll cause the economy to crash. But anyway, like I do acknowledge that it's quite a common narrative in Singapore, in pragmatic Singapore. Like um, government official, I heard a government official who said yesterday, like, so you say you want to go back to the stone age and like name names. get rid of everything. Name names. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, don't name names. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like, also, um, like, I think, like, also personal, like, family, friends, also, like, uh, think, think sometimes, like, what I'm talking about is, like, crazy, like, oh, so, like, you don't want to use all your paper, pen, computer, and then I think also another <laughs> minister who I cannot say, in the newspaper last time, he said, like, um, so you don't want to your, get rid of all your phones, yeah. uh, that kind of thing, so, so, like, um, it's quite a common thing in Singapore, but I feel like it's painting a false binary right between the economy and the environment. Like what we are calling for is a just transition to like what Kate said just now to a new future. We're calling for a, a steady transition as well. I think like um this links back to uh, students for fossil free future fossil fuel universities report. They called for short term, medium term, and long term um measures, and then they also called for uh overall. Overall, our um the goal that we want to reach is full divestment by twenty thirty, and so this is what we are looking at and calling for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So this is the poster I see in in the leaf, right? In in triple S. This is the one you're talking about, right, Teres? Uh, the students for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I think is there. Yeah. Okay. So so I have I have two responses, right? One to Kate, one to Teres, right? So so Kate, uh, you said that. Uh, as climate activists uh, responsible, right? Well, I have three words that I want to discuss later. Just stop oil. <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss that in a while, right? Then, Therese, right? If I, could, if I could push you a little, right? So, so this, when people talk about the economy, they are not talking about the economy, which is an abstract concept, right? Because depressions, as an economic depressions, kill people as well, right? Depressions kill, recessions uh, take away lives as well, right? I remember the, the yeah. first year of COVID, there were more deaths by suicide in Singapore than there were by uh, uh, th through COVID, right? So, 
So how will you respond to that? Like when people are talking about economy, it's not that they don't care about the environment. They are talking about the economy precisely because they care about lives. Yeah, but I also feel like the current economy in itself is not also doing very well. It's not healthy. It, like even if it's some people are, are definitely like benefiting from it, there's still a very large proportion of it who um may not have their voices amplified. Also, that and also like for example, vulnerable communities who are suffering also at this in this economy. Um, just to add on to that, I also think that's a very like from a developed country perspective, like. Yeah, we're suffering like during COVID, during recessions. But what we don't understand is countries like Pakistan. They had floods earlier this year, and literally one third of their country was underwater. Like that is just a crazy statistic. And eventually, Singapore could reach that point if we're not taking action fast enough. Yeah, and the yeah. fact that also like like begging for for funds right from like developed nations. Like why wasn't structures there already that help them to access these funds quickly and uh, and have, making them also accessible to save lives as many lives as possible like all these shows deep gaps in our economic system and something needs to change yeah Th thank you I, I think that that was a good answer i think uh, it's also important to acknowledge that there are some countries all countries will suffer from climate change but some will suffer even more right so countries like bangladesh and pakistan and can think about maldives and and those those countries are even more vulnerable right um okay thank you so much uh, so let's get to the spicier questions if we could right so um so there's there's a perception and it's not perception i share this sometimes as well you know so uh that climate activism can be quite performative right so uh when when you use a i, I know kate your your own instagram is bring your own bottle right by the yeah. way I, I i started like really actively bringing my own bottle after i saw your your instagram like before this i was quite laser fair really really i was quite laser fair like oh i just I just bought it but but anyway so uh you know plastic straws is huge right especially among among people your generation like uh, the uh, the aversion to plastic straws right but yet yeah, they will buy an iphone every year they'll buy new clothes every week and then they'll they'll use the aircon 24/7 right so i i don't use the aircon at home unless unless there are guests right so even when i sleep so i think i've earned the right to use plastic straws for two or three years <laughs> So, so how would you say? Would you agree with that strand of criticism where there's a lot of climate activism, right, which is very performative, uh, and it's very easy to jump on the bandwagon, but it's harder to sacrifice the things that that really matter to us. Yeah, I think I've seen a lot, like especially a lot of young people who talk about climate and say they care, but when you see their actions, it really doesn't reflect. And I think you gave like all the examples. There was also like some OCBC study from last year or this year that actually found that Gen Zs fare the worst in climate action. Oh. Um. So that's that's actually it's not surprising to me when I see like the way my friends or even myself sometimes like live or like a certain lifestyle. I think that being said, we need to be very clear that like sometimes individual action really isn't enough to shift the kind of systemic sure. action we need, right? Like the entire sure. concept of a carbon footprint, that was actually started by the fossil fuel industry because it shifts the burden to individuals rather Absolutely. than these. Yeah, and so 
I mean, I still feel like people have to try their best, especially if you live um, if you live in in a country like Singapore, where a lot of these things are accessible, and it is very possible, like um, for people who are in pretty privileged um, families. But that being said, there are still like certain gaps where, for example, you can bring your bo- your bottle out, but are there water coolers for you to get like to refill your water bottle, right? And those are infrastructure that, as one person, like I cannot change. Yeah, and I also feel like it's not just a uh, young people or like young climate activists that also um are doing these uh like performative kind of actions, right? Like we also see like um people a, a lot of uh, uh for example corporate people or like um public officials who also don't really seem to like sometimes uh, they do certain activities that make me like question also like oh um how sincere also the, are they already caring about the environment also. And I also feel like it's important, it, as much as these contradictions exist, as much as we can't live perfect lives, it's important for us to be very consciously aware of it and also uh, keep acknowledging this uh, acknowledging this environmental footprint rather than choosing to remain oblivious or rather like some self-important people that I mentioned earlier, like thinking that their environmental good deeds in other areas will somehow absolve themselves of their own right. responsibility contributing to this issue, right? We have right. a lot of anger, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Because no, no. to give some context, I'm spilling tea right here, but <laughs> basically someone said like, oh, if I'm crafting policies for Singapore's environment, then I can use however many straws I want. Whereas my perspective is, why can't you do both? Yeah. Especially do both. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's just makes me like scratch my head, right? Man? Like, like, do you, are you really looking at the pragmatic impact of like every single thing you do? Or are you really like doing things because you, you're speaking from the heart because you really care about it from your heart? And so also like, um, I think, for example, like, although all, almost all of us like took planes here, right? I also argue that um, some of us deserve to, um, deserve more than others to do so. <laughs> on that carbon emission because like for ex- okay for example like maybe like uh from the climate activist perspective personal carbon emissions like why do i still choose to fly for me like for for us i feel like this is not an ordinary conference this is something this conference is very close for an issue that's very close to my heart it's um more of an emergency gathering it's a deafening call for action like a rally to remind ourselves of what we need to do right now rather than pushing the issue away and i feel like this should also be the same reasons that everyone at here a cop is here for. But of course, reality is different. And also, I now know of many people who are here to find like business networks to get one more thing on their CV or perhaps the worst of all, like for example, some fossil fuel delegates to stall climate negotiations so that they can hold on to their money. And for this group of people, I really think that it's a waste of common emissions and they should just get out of here. <laughs> like the climate yeah, is too urgent already to continue fretting about personal ego, to continue being preoccupied with our self-interest. And yes, oh, and um, yeah, I think also it shows us the whole idea of like climate inequality, right? How some people don't think twice about their habits that break this planet and how self, self-important people absolve themselves of this disproportionate, com- of their disproportionate complicity in this crisis. Wow, that 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 was wonderful, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, that that deserves a high five. That 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 was that was excellent. Okay, so point taken. I think I think I think you're right. I think ultimately the corporate uh, greenwashing uh, and you know governments also do this performative thing, and we need to hold them accountable because ultimately the structures are what matter. Uh, but. Uh, also, we can do both, right? Individual responsibility. You know, I, I talked about bringing my own bottle because of your your Instagram handle. Like, I 
try to buy fewer clothes because of Chiyun's uh, stuff, like what she says. You know, she says what she's a proud, what, what something, the, 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 the phrase clothes repeater or something, that's, that's the phrase she, she uses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, so I have been posit positively influenced by, by you guys. So thank you so much. Okay, so um, still, still on the same track. Okay, so I find that there is a certain form of condescension, not from the two of you. The two of you are extremely enlightened, you know. So, uh, but there is a certain form of condescension from a lot of climate activists, right? And I even find this in Greta Thunberg, to be honest, like uh, the way like she speaks, right? So. Is it true? Is it fair to say that climate activists tend to be condescending? What, what do you mean by condescending though? <laughs> Who's doing the interview here? Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, okay. Alright, alright. So do you think they, they speak to others from a sense of moral superiority? Which is, I guess, in, in some ways, it's not wrong, right? Because if you have a position, you must believe your position is superior, right? But do you believe that they go further than they should, right? Like, they are speaking to people, hey, you guys are stupid, you guys are immoral, like, be like us. We are smarter, we are more enlightened, we are more moral than you guys. I think Therese and I were talking about this just now, and I found that, like, over the years, my approach to activism is not just telling people, oh, you have to do this. I think it's more of being like, here is like, here's what I'm doing for the environment and this is why I'm doing it. And then kind of how you do like a ripple effect. I think that's how it works in the Singapore context. Um, that being said, for people like Greta, who you find condescending to like governments or corporates, I think all I have to say is maybe, but I think it's totally justified <laughs> because... Well, yeah. I think being condescending to governments and corporate organizations, I think that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but to ordinary people who maybe use plastic straws, that's that's my my concern. Yeah. Okay. I feel like, like personally, um, the environmental movement uh focuses a lot on like solidarity, right? Solidarity with people we never seen before or solidarity we never know but who are suffering the worst impacts of the climate crisis, right? So I think like um, with, that, with that kind of mindset or that kind of back of the mind concern, I, I feel like if, uh, if we have this kind of yeah, mindset, then we wouldn't really go take an approach of, of like condescension towards other people but rather like um, this, a position of like love and um, yeah, in, in our advocacy instead. And so I feel like that, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's very appropriate also if, like, uh, if for, like, for activism to be about, like, yourself, like, for example, capit uh, focusing on, like, oh, my ideas are the best. And then um, I, I think, like, that form of condescension is um, very much unwarranted and it will not be, uh, solve the climate, climate change at all. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it's not... Sorry, carry on, carry on, Therese. Yeah. Like that being said, I think it's more often that we see the opposite is true instead. That there are more people, cases of people in corporates or governments because they are at such an elite level, right? And like they're not really like on the ground as often as um, us. Being more condescending towards like climate activists rather than the other way around. And we actually face that a few times yeah, in the conference. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and like... What, what, like, what was the response? 
too like yeah, too, too idealistic, too inexperienced, and yeah, let's right. face it. So this current system, which is like built by these experienced and pragmatic people, is so thoroughly problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I think that that was an excellent answer. You know this. Uh, governments and uh, corporations always w- will use that, right? They'll say, "Oh, you're too idealistic." I, I, I wonder also how that became a legitimate criticism. At which point in human history you're too idealistic? Like, isn't it good like to have ideals and to have, like, like, why is that a criticism? Why are you not idealistic? Right? Why are you uh, comfortable with the status quo? Right? So, so yeah. So I definitely agree. I think governments and uh, governments especially, they like to come from a point of view where, or from a point where they say, oh, you guys have a, don't have the data, you guys are in your own bubbles, so you know, the standard one. But on about activists, right? I don't think climate activists are the only one who can fall into this trap of self-importance. I think I see this amongst activists in general. And I, I think even if I were to be honest myself, like from time to time, I have to check myself because we have a tendency to self-aggrandize our, our own importance, right? So, um, so yeah, I think, I think it's uh, what, what the two of you said is, is really useful. Thank you so much. Yeah. So do you think climate activists, especially now, because, sorry, did you want to say something? Oh yeah, like actually, like personally, on my environmental journey, I, I have, not that I've been out there for very long, maybe like of two or three years, but I feel like I've seen a change in myself also, right? Like from um in, in the initial part of it, I think like there's a lot of uh, feelings of like despair or like wanting to find big solutions that can like solve climate change, and then it's like one thing to like think of like big ideas. I can I can solve climate change with this like, one big uh, solution. I also seen this same kind of mindset also in some people who are like new to the climate movement. But like um I think as uh time time went by, like I realized the that solutions lie in like people power, like lies in community and community solidarity and like finding um solutions from people on the ground and from people who have been like marginalized, for example. So like I feel like that um, and that, that uh, newfound knowledge also helps to act as a constant check to me, like to make sure that like I'm not um talking about myself, but rather like talking for like the people that I am supposed to be um standing in solidarity with. Yeah, right, I think okay. especially sorry because yeah, like. Yeah. Like at court, right, we're surrounded by people from every single country. And I think coming from Singapore, we are aware that we come from a very privileged position. Um, and I mean, Singapore is still considered developing country at the UN level, right? But we know it's not true. <laughs> and so we come here and then we listen to people really talk about how they've like lost their homes or lost their culture and families because of climate change. And I think it's just very important to be aware of like the position that we are in. And it's, we're not being here um, and like, talking about climate justice, like, we've really experienced it. Because I think the truth is that we, or at least I haven't necessarily, um, like, have a lived experience of it. And so it's very important to just, like, listen and give them that space to share about their experiences. And then we take that home as an experience and share that with our own communities, like, in Singapore as well. Right. So that's, it goes to what Fadila asked. Uh, she asked, do you think that people who are most impacted by the climate crisis are sufficiently represented? at forums like COP? I think it's changing. Um, Civil society space is definitely opening up at COPs. And we see like, there's a lot of indigenous representation here. I think still not as much as there should be, but it is. Um, This year there was like 
uh, Children and Youth Pavilion, um, which is the first time in COP's history that they've actually done that. There's also a Climate Justice Pavilion, which is also the first one. So this COP was like full of milestones like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but like I think um, like in a panel yesterday, Kiyoki was like saying how there's still so much more fossil fuel delegates than the, the top 10 top 10 most vulnerable countries. Like the number of oil and gas lobbyists here at COP outweigh the number of delegates from top 10 most vulnerable countries. Wow. What, what, what are some of these most vulnerable countries? Do you guys have... There's actually like a number from Southeast Asia. Um, so probably like... Bang- yeah, Philippines, Vietnam. Philippines. And then South Asia as well, Bangladesh. Mm, okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, uh, Liana says that hope is still important in response uh, to, to what you guys said. I will go one step further. I would say hope is all we have. The moment we lose hope, we lose life itself, you know. So, uh, are climate activists losing support, you think, based on the, you know, how people like to judge by extremes, right? And, and you see just top oil in, in the UK. And in fact, public sentiment, even in UK, has sort of... <laughs> right against many of these even though in general people in the UK they are not like in the US where you know there are climate deniers or whatever it is uh, so generally you have the population does believe in climate change and they are supportive of it but these things do uh, for the for those who are unaware the just stop all you know they were uh, protesting and shutting down roads and so on you know and it was difficult for people to just carry on with the da- their daily lives. Do you guys get a sense that... So is this talked about even in the activist circles or is this something far removed happens in the UK and it's a one-off and it doesn't happen in the other parts of the world? No, I think it's definitely talked about, especially among like young activists here. Um, and something that's come up for a lot of us is why did Jacob Oil have to resort to such a connection? Because... It's not like they just wake up one day and say, let's block the roads. Like, I, it's probably the fact that they were just repeatedly shut down over and over again. That they feel they have to resort to this. Because they weren't, giving the right, they weren't given the right avenues to voice their thoughts in the first place. Um, and I think throughout history, we've seen that civil disobedience has always been the catalyst of change. And so there are a lot of activist groups increasingly resorting to actions like that. Um, my personal stance is that, like, why are we more concerned? For example, they threw tomato soup at painting, right? And people got so angry over that. And I understand it was an expensive painting, but why are we more concerned about the painting than the fact that an entire country, one third of it was underwater? Like, it just seems so unbalanced in my mind. Um, I know that strategy will not work in Singapore, but I still feel like if it works for them in those countries and if it's really like being brought the media attention that, that was the ultimate like, aim of it, really, to get the media attention so that they can talk about climate crisis. Then I don't think we have a right to kind of judge them and say, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I also feel like even though um, to some extent, yes, it may have like, tainted the idea of like, climate act- activism um, as a whole, I feel like it's also important to not see like, climate activists as like, one monolithic or homogeneous group, right? Like, um, activism lies on a spectrum, activism is dynamic. 
and activism is so responsive to the social cultural conditions that is situated within. Right? So, like for example, what I may not personally agree with, I'll be willing to do the same actions as just the oil. Like what right? Like what that kid said, do I have to judge them? Perhaps their actions did work to some extent in their own home countries, and perhaps like yeah, they were, they were have have been in not multiple times by Peter in authority, or perhaps they were. Um, have some personal painful experiences because of climate change. They, like, for example, over here in COP, uh, I've heard about how indigenous peoples telling their stories about how they saw their fathers, mothers, children die in front of their eyes. And so my point is that like, there are so um, many different types of activism and shaped by the different and birthed and shaped by the different social cultural forces that they are placed in. And so then like, for me, as long as they are non-violent, I see no reason why I should um, point fingers and say that this type of activism is wrong, ineffective, or inferior in any way. So I, I just want to emphasize that uh, Kate and Therese are talking about civil disobedience in other countries, okay? So for whoever is watching, <laughs> they are not calling for it in Singapore, okay? So <laughs> yeah, and okay, so, so yeah, yeah, carry on, carry on. Like as a Singaporean activist, we know that a lot of these strategies from overseas cannot be translated in our own country. Like you don't see us doing this in Singapore, and yeah. I don't think we would dare to. Yeah, in the first place, and so. also to be honest, I do acknowledge that there are a lot of platforms also for us to um like engage with our ministers, perhaps um more than other countries maybe. Like for example, we we have been invited to like dialogues before with um ministers of as if, uh, the National Climate Change Secretariat of PMO. And so on. So we do recognize these opportunities so we can make our voice heard, even though we feel like it should um, be ramped up a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a combination of comments from Rebecca, uh, whom Therese knows very well, and from Steffi, uh, who's the one who's, who's uh, helping me out with, with Data Rich. She's the one who, who does my YouTube stuff. So uh, Rebecca says that she doesn't think it works in the UK though. NGL, not gonna lie. I know what that means. Okay, so I'm studying in London now from Steffi and I don't know what XR is. And just talk all uh, really changing what people think of climate activism. Uh, and Steffi goes on to say, why do we, you can say why do we care more about a painting but when people from XR are stopping people from getting to work because of their activism, it's not a good look. And Rebecca also said it could be violence against culture, which I think shouldn't be downplayed. And, and I, I agree with that as well, right? So it's not just a painting. Right? A painting represents a lot of things, especially if it's something that uh, society has decided that this represents the pinnacle of artistic creativity in our, in our civilization or whatever it is, right? So if you're going you're gonna destroy, even though it's inanimate, but it represents something, right? So, so let's say it's it's something like this, right? If there's a painting of Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore and you you pour something on it, right? It's gonna get a lot of Singaporeans riled up. Never mind that. If there's a Singapore flag or a country's flag, right? It's an inanimate thing, but it symbolizes so much, right? So, would you would you see why people are upset? I think I think it's a fair point. Um. I personally cannot resonate with the painting. I feel like blocking roads and the tube, like that one could be extreme. Um, but yeah, like if Steffi is living in London and if she's like personally experiencing this and feels that that form of activism doesn't work, then I think that's more accurate than anything we've said. Yeah, Rebecca's in UK as so. well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Rebecca yeah. Is, is there as so well. I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. No, so I... XR, Extinction Re Rebellion, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, oh, yeah. I feel like uh, I also need like more context as to understanding what that painting is about and like what it symbolized. Like for example, I think um not not really climate related, but I think there was like some um uh people I who in the UK or the US who like destroying statues of people who symbolize um uh, racism in the past or something like that. So like even though yes, they may have done a lot of things to help to develop the country and develop the state, like um these. Uh, these remaining statues of them give people a lot of like bad memories of the uh, racial injustices that have uh, trickled down until today or so, right? So like, I feel like I need more context as to understanding the cultural significance and of that painting. So. Okay, thank you. I mean, I don't want to talk about race because then we will have to extend for one hour already. So, <laughs> so okay, thank you so much. So what would you want the Singapore government to do that they are not doing now? That you think. Oh, by the way, before I get to that question, so so Therese, you mentioned that in Singapore you have a lot of opportunities. You get invited to COP. You know, you sit at uh, dialogues uh, with ministers and MPs. And how sure are you that's not a form of cooptation? And how sure are you that people in the UK they can just email their MP and their MPs reply immediately, right? And they can they have far more outlets, wouldn't you say so? Just because you get invited more to dialogues with policy makers what makes you think that your your impact is higher uh, yeah definitely my I, I can't really like say my impact is higher or anything but like i think it's very important also for me to like listen to both sides right like both listen to the policy makers but also keep very uh, close connection to the voices on the ground voices not only from my own organization like SYCA Singapore Youth for Climate Action but also like voices from uh, actually climate rally or voices from um, S4F, the students for fossil free future and so all these um, diverse voices in the climate movement are also uh, very important and all these different voices on different uh, aspects of the, the whole spectrum of activism right and all the different ideas so I feel like that helps to keep me um, aware and uh, conscious critical. yeah and crit critical also yeah, and by the way, I don't think anyone should ever uh, turn down an invitation to engage with policymakers. Not not ever, but sometimes, I mean, you do it out of strategy, right? But I think as long as you have a chance to engage, you should engage. Right? I, I really think it's a mistake to not, not go to the table and bank table if you have to, but still accept the invitation, right? So uh, there's a comment by N1R1. Uh, the world's leading polluter of plastics in 2021 is the official sponsor of COP. Uh, is that true? I mean, I don't know. And what what do you think of that? Yeah. Um. So okay, a fun story is that at the start when Coca Cola was a sponsor, it got huge backlash, like across every major media outlet. And then in the last week, we saw them slowly covering all the Coca-Cola logos here. So I'm not really sure if they are still sponsoring it. But I do think it was just a very bad choice on the Egyptian presidency part in choosing Coca-Cola. Yeah. Hmm. Because it's, it goes completely against the values here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Egyptian president, to be fair, has made far bigger mistakes than choosing Coca-Cola to be there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll leave it there because the two of you are still in Egypt. Okay, so uh, now that you've had the chance to be exposed to other government stances to climate change, how would you summarize Singap the Singapore government's position? And that was going to be my question as well. What do you want the government to do from now on? 
I think the government's position is very it's like a very Singaporean thing, right? Like we just choose what fits our national interest best. And to be fair, we don't think it's just Singapore. I think we can do that. Um, in terms of like there was this like someone once said this to me, which is that Singapore doesn't have environmental policies. We just have economic policies that happen to be good for our environment. And I think to some extent that is true. Um, even though it's shifting a bit, but at the end of the day, it's still like GDP, economy, pragmatism as as the like baseline. Yeah. The rest. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So we have like we uh we had this a green group meetup where we met up with uh, we have a joint meetup with the different environmental groups in Singapore, and then after that we got the inputs on what kind of recommendations they like to see in um, the government's uh, pol current policies or like corporate's current policies or so. And then we came up, we finally like synthesized uh, it to uh, 26 recommendations in the different themes. Yeah, so I think that's what I mean. It's a policy so, paper. Okay, yeah. so, uh, so and they can find this on the Instagram page? Yeah, it's one of our top posts. Okay, um, Ken. Yeah. Can I highlight like certain policies? Ca carry on, carry on. Yeah. I think one of them is carbon tax, which I wanted to bring up because it was debated in Parliament like last week. Um, and right now there's a the bill that was or the act that was just passed. There's a part that gives fossil fuel companies allowances in the carbon tax, meaning the minister can kind of say, okay, these companies like you are exempted from the carbon tax for a certain period of time. And I think that just goes against the principles of like a fair or uniform tax because you don't really want to give these countries a free pass, right? Um, it's also the fact that the allowances are very non-transparent. So we don't know why they are being given to who or for how long. Um, and so that was something that kind of came out in parliament, although both parties supported having allowances. But I think from an environmental perspective, it just, it's very difficult to to be able to like accept it or see the need for it when we aren't given any information about about it. Mm. Yeah, I think also at the start, just now we were talking about like carbon credits, right? So um, right now, uh, companies, even though they all make to pay the carbon tax, which we have, we've, we've heard, right, is increasing um, $25 or something like that. Yeah, I think you need to go and like uh, Google to check out more exactly on what the exact taxes, but like there's actually a 5% allowance for companies to trade off uh, for carbon credits instead or so. And there's not a lot of transparency into like which companies are doing this and um, how much also they are doing. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So a lack of transparency, you know, I, I think I've heard that before for other areas in Singapore's public policy as well. Okay, so so let's end on a conciliatory note, right? So which uh, member of parliament or politician that you guys have found to be most amenable to your suggestions or your critiques uh, or your policy proposals? If any, you can, you can choose to say, oh, there's nobody, right? Nobody really cares about this. Or, yeah, if any. 
I think this is quite straightforward for me, which is um, MP Lewis Ng from PAP. He's been championing for like environmental stuff since the start. And we did a data analysis before of all the PQs, like environmental related PQs that MPs asked. And he like by far just wins the entire thing. Like so many PQs from him <laughs> about environment. He's also the one who keep like just kept pushing for a higher carbon tax for net zero. And so I think he's been yeah. very consistent throughout the years. But that being said, so like um, in our policy workshop, we like, because like, we have this uh, like, conversations with like data meeting people about like also oh, who, which is the parliamentarian that is most um, championing environment issues. And a lot of people only know Louis Ong. And so like for me, I find it a bit like problematic. So like we need to know more diverse faces within our parliament also so we can like, um, push for diverse places who speak on certain um, environmental policies. So like who is, which pet topic is under whom and so on. And so I feel like having this idea of like who, who speaks on what, right, helps us also to make more targeted um, policy recommendations towards these people and also help to like uh, put like some kind of pressure on them to advocate on this policy which they are more interested in. Although like, um, most of them are also very much economic and pragmatic or related kind of ever policies. Oh, but I also have to add, I feel like the Sengkang MPs have been doing a good job of raising more climate-related issues. Mm. Yeah. So, the, like so the, the three current Sengkang MPs, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Ru, James, Lim, and... Yeah. yeah, okay. Right, right. Okay. Thank you. So, I mean, no, no disagreements that Louis Ng also happens to be the only sitting PAP MP who has come on uh, this show. Uh, so the rest, the other PAP folks were all retired. Yeah. So other than Louis, is there anybody from from the PAP, from the government especially? I, I remember you yeah. posted something before, Kit, about... I can't remember who, but someone from the PAP who you said always listen to you. Even sometimes when you disagree with him. Oh, yeah. Um, Desmond Tan ah, um, okay. from Pasir. He, I was, okay, so he was actually at first in MSE as a Minister of State. And then they moved him to NTC. And then it was, yeah, I was very sad. Because <laughs> I felt like he really listened or like made the effort to learn about what environmental groups wanted. Um, yeah. yeah. Like sometimes you can feel that um, like... Uh, some of these ministers or like public officials who are making like environmental policies like they like to uh, they assure us that oh yes we do care about the environment but sometimes I wonder like do they care about it like beyond the policy making level do they care about like on the personal level like were they um, why does that really, matter to like, you why, why does that matter to you because like like <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's I like because you you mentioned this earlier also right and then i'm thinking who cares right i mean i i don't care like what you can be i mean you can be a personal bigot all you want right uh, but as a politician if you enact policies which are multiracial multicultural that's all i care about right because your personal bigotry will not affect me if your public policy is sound right and is our focus on on trying to go for the goodness of a politician's heart. Ultimately, that's going to fail us, right? Because shouldn't we just go for institutions and public pressure that will force even bad people to, to do the right things uh, and not rely on this uh, 
uh, uh, what do you call it, a black swan of a good-hearted person, right? Whoever this person is to suddenly save us, right? Um, yeah. I, 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 I feel like they're intrinsically related, right? Like how your personality is, it also affect, also feed into the kind of policies that you make, right? Like, for example, in um, politics, we learn about... Um, about how narcissistic people or paranoid people will affect the kind of uh, egoistic policies that they make that prioritize like their own personal um, considerations over like their national interests as well. So I feel like they're still intrinsically related and although it's ideal that we have institutions that prevent the that prevent uh, such uh, personalities from like seeping into the policies that you make, it's also unrealistic to expect that like they are com they will completely be um, like personality free. Okay, I'm gonna disagree with Therese on this one <laughs> because like personally, I feel like my interest is not really in the environment per se. Like there are people who care about trees or about nature and I feel like I never really had that inherent connection. Whereas for me, it's more of like a logical thing where I see the climate crisis happening and I see how people are affected by it and that's what I care more about. Um, and so for me, it's less important that that politicians care like about the environment. Like you don't really have to love nature, but what I expect is at least to be open-minded to civil society groups and to at least hear those perspectives and take that into consideration in your policy making. Right. Yeah, so, I feel, so that's a, yeah. Carry on, carry on. But for me, I feel like I have this like innate feeling of like connection to nature. But like, yeah, I I I, I agree with Kate in that like um I feel like politicians should also care about nature. Should also be connected to the environment. Um, like I feel like everybody should be connected to the environment because we are all from the environment, and and that's and I feel like that should also affect the way they create their policies. Right. Yes. So I, I I I know Therese not super well, but well enough, you know, to uh, to know that she means every word she said, and she is she is really that person. She's a good person, good-hearted person, right? But I don't expect to vote for a politician who's like Therese, right? Like someone like Therese. I mean, uh, and you you also said about uh, egos, right? Uh, a person who doesn't have an ego probably would not be inclined to joining politics to begin with, right? There's a selection bias in terms of uh, those. So yeah. I guess, I mean, I, I'll just end, end off uh, uh, this, this particular uh, segment on, on, on that note, right? I don't, I don't find the, the focus on finding good-hearted people fruitful. And also, how do I know whether you're a good-hearted person? How, how do I know that? There's just no way for me to, to know. I can only judge by what I see, right? And, and the other thing is, I suppose, um, you can be good uh, before you get power, but after you get power, then there's a different matter altogether, right? Not that power changes you, but it reveals who you are, right? Like before you had power, you didn't have an opportunity to show that you're a douchebag. But now you you have power. Didn't you? <laughs> okay, final words uh, from Therese and Kate. Anything you guys want to say? You go first? Uh, you go first. Okay, <laughs> I just want to we've been called idealistic so many times throughout this conference. And I just want to address that and say that I think what is idealistic is when you think you can conquer Mother Nature with metal and technology, and when you think you can bend the laws of nature, because it, it really is not possible. And I think climate change will come to Singapore one way or another, and you cannot like finance your way out of it. 
Um, and so we're definitely going to have to like take action fast enough to prevent that situation. Yeah. And for me, I want to say that like, even though we are at COP here, like I feel like real action happens outside of COP, it happens on the ground. And so I feel like when we go back and, and like, I feel that we need to, um, like, for, not just us, but like all Singaporeans, we need to like have more discussions about the environment and more honest and open ways also, like for just um, politicians, day-to-day um, -day people, like everybody as a whole of society. Thank you. I know I keep saying last point, last point, but then there's a question by Fadila. Uh, is there any piece of literature that you can recommend that has been effective in helping people understand the reality of climate change? Any particular any... book or article or website? Uh, I really like Naomi Klein. Um, her last name is K-L-E-I-N and she's an author from Canada. Um, I find her work very, very inspiring. Mm. I feel like for me, the literature that I consume is like constantly changing also. Like I used to read a lot of, The like Guardian used to have this um, newsletter called The Green Light. And then like, I think, oh, I, I, I think I read it like almost every day. And like during uh, when I was like 17 or 18, and I feel like that uh, reading that really helped to shape my perspectives of, of the environment, um, like both a uh, not just at a local level, but also from um, in the international one. And... Yeah, it really like shaped my environmental principles and uh, how I grew also as a person. But then I feel I think that newsletter is like out of date already. So I feel I think um uh really there's no one fixed newsletter that will best work. Rather, you find something that you can connect with and that um speaks to you from mm -hmm. the heart. Yeah. Okay. Kit Teres, thank you so much. Uh, you you mentioned Kit that Naomi Klein was inspiring. I found this conversation honest, honest to God. I found it inspiring, and I I hope you continue to be idealistic, you know. And it always, when I when I talk to you, it gives me hope, you know, in in young young people. But but of course, when I talk to other young people, it gives me despair. But but hopefully, there's more. <laughs> hopefully, there's more of you out there. Uh, then then the people who caused me despair. Thank you so much for coming on this show and thank you for kicking off this season to, to a great start, okay? Uh, sorry? Yeah, 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 of course. Well, are you idealistic? Yeah. Because I, I'm... I, plus, you say that like as you grow older, you become less idealistic. You are, you are right. So I, I think I am idealistic. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. But for sure, if I compare myself to... So I think if I compare myself to the median Singaporean, probably I'm a bit more idealistic. But I compare myself to when I was your age, for sure, I become maybe not, not less idealistic because I didn't mention that specifically. I mentioned that I became more cowardly, if you remember. It's even worse. <laughs> As you grow older, you become less bold. I mentioned that. I find that, I find that true for myself, right? Uh, which is why someone someone really wise said this before, you know. So the wisdom of the of the old must be tempered by the sorry, the enth enthusiasm of the young must be tempered by the wisdom of the old. You know. So if you are older you are wiser but you are more scared, you're less bold. When you're younger you're less wise, but you are very brave, you want to push boundaries. So you must try to find this middle ground, right? And that's that's the sweet spot of society. Yeah. I didn't oh, come okay. up with that by the way. Yeah. Somebody else did, yeah. Along those lines. Oh, yeah, sure. I don't have to sleep. Let's carry on until 1 a.m., right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I want to 
because it was from like an indigenous perspective and I think a lot of times we feel like older people don't care but I think it's not true. Um, and it basically says the youth run the fastest but the elders know the path. And I like you just you need a bit of both at the end of the day. Oh my gosh. Wait, I just stop off something. <laughs> I need to say something. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like I think that um, like, uh, like climate action also isn't just like a youth kind of um, ambitioning thing. It's yeah. something that is intergenerational. I've seen like old people, uh, middle aged people also keep talking about the, um, the solutions that they have and the ideas that they have. So I feel like um, it's it's really uh, like uh, intergenerational partnership that we need to do. And also a lot of uh, solutions that we have to, like the um, like environmental issues can also be found in like indigenous knowledge, in, in the knowledge of our great-grandfathers, our great-great-grandmothers and so on. And I feel like that's what we need to revive rather than trying to invest $1 million in a new technology that we don't know whether it will right. work and then we use a lot of resources, energy and everything. And then like, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I should. <laughs> no, no, that's true. I, I, I find that even the, the Singapore solution is always, so oh, what is the technology you can, what is the new technology, right? So, so excellent. I, th I think that is a really good way to, to end the session because you guys talked about this intergenerational, <laughs> intergenerational uh, coalition, right? I find that that is true for race activism. I think while you want to you wanna push for more honest discussions, you must also be wise enough to never alienate the majority because otherwise it's not going to go anywhere. And I think uh, for climate action as well, you know, it's always good to get people on your side. And doesn't mean you have to censor yourself, but maybe sometimes there's just a wiser way of saying or doing things, right? So thank you so much. I won't ask you for, do you have any more comments? Because then I'm sure you guys still have more comments. <laughs> Stop here before we continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's been a pleasure. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.